As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the 3-0 Show, part of the Athletic Baseball Show. It is Monday, October 23rd. Derek the Riper, Eno Saris here with you. Bridger out on assignment, watching the games in person. I'm still really jealous because this is a fantastic ALCS that Brit has been covering. Yeah, it really is. It's been really exciting. Uh, the playoffs were not super exciting up until the CSs, I feel like. And I think maybe it was you that said that any moment it can change. Well, I didn't say that, but that sounds like something I would say, so I'll take credit. (laughs) Maybe I said it to myself and you heard it from thousands of miles away. (laughs) But it it really can because you can just have a a walk-off win. You can have a series, two series that go to six and seven, and you can have, you know, big swings back and forth, which are some of the things we were missing, I think, earlier on. I don't think none of the wild card uh, races uh, went to three. And, no, the, the uh, first round was a dud. It, yeah. it's, for a round that's designed to sort of manufacture the the urgency and, and the drama that you are getting right now from the LCSs, the yeah. wild cards were, were flat this year. I don't think that's going to happen most years. I think that's a bit of an anomaly. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why it happened. I mean, there's, you know, and then, there, there, and then we had the DS where it was like the whole conversation was about, you know, rest and 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 time off and you know all these uh excellent offenses looking bad i would just say that you know excellent offenses look bad in three game stretches all the time um and from my research i had a piece come out where i tried to look at things like clutch and 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 getting rusty and in uh, one of my examples was uh, in the post in the post all-star game like that game that first game after the all-star game um results for hitters are better than expected uh after some time off and for every hitter that says yeah you can get cold in that amount of time uh even the hitters that did say that said well it can be good for your body (laughs) yeah you you can have things that hurt if you're not playing well going into the break just the mental break coming back could be a good thing so you know i think because of 
who the teams were that struggled coming off of rest, I think that also increased the amount of conversation about it. I mean, the Braves had one of the best offenses of all time, and the Dodgers are kind of a juggernaut to have those two go cold. Yeah. yeah. I think that would, if you had different top seeds do that, I feel like the conversation's a little bit different, or at least less in volume. But we got a game seven coming up here on Monday night, and so much had to happen since we last recorded an episode in this feed. Keith and I talked on Friday, and at the time, between the two series, the the biggest story was, what exactly are the Phillies going to do with Craig Kimbrell? That hasn't gone away. It's just been pushed down in importance relative to everything else that's been going on. Let's rewind to Friday. That was Game 5 of the ALCS, and the pivotal moment in the series at the time appeared to be Adolis Garcia hitting a three-run homer off of Justin Verlander, taking the walk down the line, spiking the bat in celebration, which I have no problem with, and I'm sure, as we've talked about this many times, you still probably have no problem with this. Just celebrating is part of the game. It's what it is. At that moment, it felt like, ooh, the Rangers may have turned this series. This could be the the thing that propels them to a Game 5 win. Two chances to close it out. Here we go. A couple innings later, in the eighth, still up 4-2, Garcia gets hit by a pitch with a runner on first base by Brian Abreu. Bench is clear, and as our friend Britt would say, it was a Springsteen. There were no punches thrown, which is a good thing. You don't actually want postseason baseball fights. It's a Springsteen, like a Springsteen concert. Everyone's just out on the grass, just having a good time. (laughs) I think it's a great name for what happens when there are no punches thrown. Yeah, Abreu gets ejected. Adelis Garcia gets ejected because as soon as he got hit, he turned and and started kind of going at Martin Maldonado. Good job by the home plate umpire, sort of keeping that situation from getting worse. He stepped in, kind of broke it up like a like a hockey linesman, so a lot of credit there. Dusty Baker got tossed because, as it was explained to him, that they were ejecting Brian Abreu. He's like, "Well, why would we hit him on purpose?" You could see it. You could see the argument he was making from a neutral position. You know, I didn't think that was a situation in which the Astros would retaliate against Adolis Garcia. So to me, I I thought it was really a nothing burger. I thought it was actually a guy that missed a location in, and it happened to be in a spot against the guy that had tossed a bat celebrating a home run a couple innings earlier. Yes. So it is really hard. And what I don't like about this whole thing is that we are uh, attempting to do the impossible, which is get inside the pitcher's head. And the pitcher is not going to tell us he did it on purpose when there's so much on the line, a two-game suspension. So we're sort of divining this. We're getting our divining rods out and looking for water, you know? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's like, uh, it's folly from start. What I noticed in the moment was Brian Abreu does not have great command. It's the main thing that's kept him from being a starter. He has a, a wide arsenal of high of great stuff. And one of the reasons he's not a starter is because of his command. So that's a thing to think about. And that's especially important because I was looking at the target that Martin put down and it was for low. Mm. I'm fairly sure of this. I, I like watched it a couple times and, uh, unless Martin Maldonado is just resting, it looks like he gives a low target. So I don't know. You can read that two ways. One way is, well, he just really missed his spot. You know, just that 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 he just uncorked one. The other one was Abreu did it on his own. Right? Yeah, he went rogue. And and situationally speaking, maybe he thought he had cover. He thought, well, we're down a couple anyway. Runner on base. Maybe I can strike a few guys out and get out of this. Maybe, maybe that happened. Nothing's impossible, but it just 
situationally didn't make sense because you don't usually see retaliation in the postseason in a still winnable game with runners on base. Like the timing of that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's usually like spring or like the next time they have a regular season matchup or something. 13 times they'll see each other in a typical regular season. Yeah. Like save it for April or May. Like, and like, I don't condone this, but that's what teams tend to do when they want to uh, get back at someone. So all of that blows over. The Astros managed to get out of that situation, still down 4-2. Well, there are ramifications to this day. <laughs> and then Jose Altuve hits a three-run homer oh to God. steal this game for the Astros, which is is remarkable. And that... Even there, there was a glimmer of hope for the Rangers in the bottom of the ninth against Ryan Presley. Yeah, they had two on. The wildest thing of all, Travis Jankowski, who had to enter the game for Garcia, was the on-deck hitter. One more hitter gets on. You know, Travis Jankowski, more of a you know defensive replacement, extra lefty speed guy on the roster, would have had to come up in that spot and hit, which would have been peak drama to really put a bow on it. But there was plenty of drama in this game. It really, it was an instant classic, right? If you're a Rangers fan, it's one that got away. But overall, if you're a neutral observer, that was one of the best playoff games that you could draw up. Yeah, Altuve has outperformed his his regular season power uh, in the postseason. But I think it's actually just a trick of the schedule. Altuve kind of had lesser power for the first four or five years of his career where he kind of averaged maybe eight homers a year for five years. And they weren't going to the postseason then. So their run of going to the postseason sort of coincides with him finding his power. Um, So I I think that, yes, he performs well in the postseason. I'm not trying to take clutch away from him. I'm just trying to sort of explain that some of this, some of these things, when we look at them, you know, that's why it, it happens. Like if you look at Clayton Kershaw's poor performance in the playoffs, a lot of it happened when he was either A, fresh faced right out the box or B, washed and throwing 89. You know, and so there there were a lot of actual good postseason starts in the middle there when he was, you know, a mid-career vet. But the Dodgers were going to the postseason every year. So, you know, you kind of got the the bad parts of Kershaw, too. That's that's at least my personal theory on it. Maybe he's just not good in the postseason. I mean, he certainly has a large sample. Altuve is great in the postseason. Uh, it looks like uh, 271, 340, for his career. 471 plate appearances, 26 homers. That's pretty good. And I just love I just love that he can hit a homer from anywhere from his nipples to his knees, I feel like. He's just he's one of these guys that covers so much of the zone and uh and has such surprising pop for that uh, for that guy. I just I I feel like he's a Hall of Famer and I know that there is a big sort of floating asterisk question mark about how voters are going to treat Astros and treat Altuve. But, uh, you know, especially if he adds another, uh, you know, few couple of seasons on top of this, I really think he'll be a Hall of Famer uh, up there with the best second baseman of all time. Yeah, I could definitely see that um, being the the final chapter of, of Jose Altuve's career in baseball. I mean, I think he's he's put the groundwork in for that to happen. I do think because we're we're seeing this team continue to have a prolonged success, like their window didn't close two years ago. If that had happened, I think the way that the way that writers and, and fans and historians mm-hmm. remember this team would be a lot different. But because it's been such an extended chance for new faces to emerge for multiple seasons of success to occur without any 
anything similar coming up, I feel like history is going to forget a lot of trash gate over time. I yeah. think at least I mean, we're talking there's about guys on this legacies. team that weren't even part of that, you know, like, right, right? Weren't even on that team. So yeah, so that just brings us to game five. There was also an exciting game six. The Rangers facing elimination back in Houston had Nathan Evaldi going, and Evaldi didn't have his absolute best stuff, you know, but he was good enough, and that's what the Rangers needed. It's been so important for for Evaldi to pitch well when his turns have come up because of the uncertainty around Max Scherzer, which we'll get to more in our Game 7 preview. Uh, Some of the questions about the depth in that bullpen, six and a third, two earned, five hits, four Ks, three walks, exactly good enough to turn it over to the A relievers for that Rangers bullpen. Yeah, Ivaldi has this weird thing that he's been going into the last two, three years where he starts with a great velocity in the beginning of the season and it just tails off as the as the season goes on. He did that again this year, um, starting with uh, 96 mile an hour plus uh, velo in the uh, beginning of the season, tailing off to 93, 94 at the end of the season bring it back up a little bit in the postseason, but still uh, only around 95 in this last start. Um, one thing that sticks out to me is that he cut his uh, cutter usage in half and he almost doubled his four-seam usage uh, in the second time seeing these guys. And I just think it it speaks to the value of having multiple pitches. If you think about somebody like Spencer Strider, you know, facing the Phillies over and over again, he's an excellent pitcher with with great stuff. But how many ways can he change the scouting report back on the on the other team? And what you saw with Ivaldi is just, uh, oh, you thought I was gonna, you know, cutter and splitter you to death. Today is the the day of the surprise four seamer, uh, in these all these counts where you think these other things are gonna happen. So. Um, you know, that's, that's, I think the value of also, you, you know, you, I've actually talked to players where they're like, oh, I'm saving, uh, that for the second half or, oh, you'll see that pitch more, uh, when I see them, you know, more down the stretch. So there are pitchers that kind of think about the full season and seeing teams more than once and like how many different wrinkles they can have. And the last thing that, uh, occurs to me when I look, watched Anthony Evaldi start is uh, I was talking to an advanced scout about the, the job of advanced scouting. And one of the, the things that's so difficult is let's say you're, you're, you're facing, I don't know, Freddie Freeman and, and you, you found some, you know, found some blue part of the heat map, right? You're like, Oh, he's not good at the high fastballs, which is, he's still pretty good, but he's not as good. Right. And so you put in the scouting report, not as good in high fastballs, so we should do that. Well, you know, I think some of the, the better teams or some many of the teams are, are now sort of reverse scouting. So they're going to tell Freddie Freeman, hey, we were looking at your stuff, we're looking at their stuff, and you're very likely to get a bunch of high fastballs today. You know, and then the hitter can anticipate his own scouting report. And so then as an advanced scouter, you're like, well, (laughs) do I just do the things he's good at? He'll never expect that. (laughs) It's next level, but I I love it. It's like trying to find your own flaws before the other team does or find them when they find them and and just say, hey, this is what you've been struggling with. So this this particular guy you're going to see, he's good at elevating fastball. He can keep the fastball up in the zone. You're probably going to see that. And then all of a sudden the unexpected happens. That's that's kind of great, actually. <laughs> Mookie Betts on MLB The Show has, like, it's all red. You know, they, they show, like, heat maps and stuff. It's all red, except the middle middle is blue. 
because no one ever pitches him there. So he's just surprised yeah, when he gets a pitch there. Got, like yeah, that. he's got like a whole he's got a whole setup, you know, to hit everything else. Or I don't know. <laughs> Where do your kids pitch Mookie Betts on MLB The Show? They, I don't think they go middle middle. Though. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I don't think anyone does. I don't think yeah, you, right. you, can't, you can't bring yourself to do it. You can't trust it. You're like, no, nah, that's blue, but I'm not going there. I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24/7 U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, some more going on in Game 6, though. Jonah High and Mitch Garver both came through with some early homers. Garver, again, tacked on a pretty big RBI double in the 8th. And uh, Adolis Garcia, coming off of 4Ks earlier in the game, put a bow on it with a grand slam in the ninth to really put it out of reach. And uh, there was some drama a little earlier. Evaldi actually hit Martin Maldonado, which you could have quickly interpreted as, oh, hey, let's let's keep this going. But in that case, that almost looked like Maldonado either didn't move his elbow out of the way or just like let it fall where the pitch was coming is kind of like part of his normal uh, pre-swing sort of routine. Nothing happened. So, you know, I think we've moved on from that. Uh, Josh Spores, kind of a big win for the pitching plus model that you've got, has been critically important to this Rangers bullpen. He got a huge double play. There was a runner on uh, with one out at 3-2 in the seventh. He came in, got out of that trouble, and he's definitely in that circle of trust for Bruce Bochy, right? You, you take, think about the relievers that you want in the game for Texas when things are tight late in the game. Josh Spores is one of those relievers. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. By stuff plus, it just looks at the uh, the shape and the, uh, and the velocity of the pitches. Um, he's uh, ahead of Jose Leclerc. Um, and, and, uh, that's just really important to have, to have another guy in the back there. Aroldis Chapman has the best stuff plus on the Rangers and yet his Achilles heel has become very obvious as he's aged and it, he has the worst location plus numbers on the roster, which is looking at just how good he, he puts the, uh, to places on the, it's like count and pitch type adjusted, um, looking at like how well he places the ball and he just he has no command it's like it's 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 amazing to watch someone who has still has that top end elite stuff struggle so much just because everybody is going to the plate not swinging sort yeah. of waiting for him to to get a strike before they start swinging so yeah you you could see how bad the misses are pretty easily with the role this Chapman, I'm curious. You mentioned Brian Abreu not having great command, having excellent stuff. I would, if I had to guess, I haven't looked at the numbers recently. Abreu's command is probably even better than Chapman's. Chapman's command is like pretty much bottom shelf for guys that get used in oh, high yeah. leverage spots, right? I mean, can't imagine there's anyone 
Alexis Diaz, maybe in Cincinnati, would be by a location guy that has plus. Brian Abreu has actually really improved his locations, but I think that's yeah. probably because as a as a reliever, you can slim down what you need to do. You can just just do your strengths. You don't have to think about turning lineups over and throwing this change up. You can't command that well or whatever it is. So I think I think he's actually sort of taking himself out. I mean, uh, like a Chapman is it, it? It'll keep him out of being a closer. It's that bad, you know even though the stuff is so good. so and, and and there was a big decision at some point. Chapman against Jordan Alvarez. Was that game six? Yeah, I think it was game six. It just happened. Games at bedtime as a young parent blur together <laughs> as bad I'm as like any making games ribs, can blur together. Doing a fantasy basketball draft, <laughs> watching the game at the same time. It was... It was the that elite was a multitasking. Sunday night. Yeah, <laughs> like it's tough. dinner time on the West Coast. It's like bedtime if you're if you're East or Central, and it's like. But oh, they left okay. Spores in to face Jordan Alvarez instead of taking Chapman in, and I I I sort of I I took notice of that. Spores struck out Jordan Alvarez, and uh, there's some ability to get Alvarez, I guess, with uh, low curveballs if you if you set him up. That's, I guess, that's been a big thing, you know? That's how Jordan Montgomery got him out. Yeah, well, he's also lefty on lefty with a, with a great breaking ball. So, uh, and, and you were on Alvarez, you know, even though he struck out then and Jordan Montgomery got him a couple times, uh, he's the best hitter in this postseason. <laughs> it's <laughs> not even was, close. What he's is absurd. 436, 477, 949. Is a slash line right now, uh, so yeah, he's I- intensely good, and you know, it, it inspired conversations about where he would rank all time. Jordan Alvarez as a hitter, and you know, uh, Rangers fans or Astros fans are like, you know, oh, you know, this, he's he's the scariest hitter of all time, like save Bonds or whatever. And, you know, you get some blowback from other fans and being like, oh, what about Ruth? And da, 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 da. Yeah, he hasn't established himself. He hasn't had a full career like that. But uh, to me, he's the scariest hitter of our generation uh, right now. Uh, him and Judge are, are, are one, two on that. And um, I don't think uh, taking someone that's, you know, it's not that hyperbolic to like take someone who's the best hitter of your time and start putting him among the best hitters of all time. (laughs) Yes, there's some like sort of projection and what's what's the rest of his career going to look like. But yeah, he's one of the best hitters of our time, at least. Yeah. And I I think what also makes some of these conversations challenging is the variable of how much playing time, how many times the guys get chances to shine on this stage. There are some guys who were really good in a handful of series, but their teams didn't get back. And in smaller playoff field eras of baseball, which is most of baseball history, there were fewer seats at the table. So that also adds a layer of difficulty. Now, what's interesting, if you look at all-time numbers in the postseason. I, I'm at the Fangraphs leaderboard. I just knocked it down to 100 plate appearances just so we see guys who have been there a little bit more than others. Based on WRC+, Plus, Jordan Alvarez tied for 22nd all-time. Very, very good. Postseason. 151 WRC+, plus, postseason only. Right next to Reggie Jackson, Mr. October himself. Which, <laughs> nice. Yeah, there, there you go. That's a good spot. Uh, you look at guys that are in that range. Kyle Schwarber actually here too does it a different way. But 20 postseason home runs now for Kyle Schwarber? It's mm. absurd. And again, number of chances, games, right? But you get more chances in this era. 251 plate appearances, you know? Like, <laughs> right. 
Right. Yeah, just relative to some of the other guys that have played a lot in the postseason, that's still really impressive. Uh, Mickey Mantle is in this range in terms of his all-time postseason numbers compared to Jordan Alvarez. Uh, a couple other modern Great guys, John Carlos right Stanton. Stanton's actually got great postseason numbers. And oh, yeah. the conversations around Stanton are not positive at the moment. <laughs> What's interesting, though, you know, Bryce Harper is even better than Jordan Alvarez in the postseason yeah. so far. Over 200 plate appearances. Bryce Harper is seventh in WRC plus all time. The top of the list is Randy Rosarena is number one. Lenny Dykstra is two. Then it's Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Paul Molitor, George Brett, Bryce Harper. Yeah, it's a fun it's, list. It's amazing. And, you know, one of the things that was difficult when I went and looked into Clutch is, you know, Bryce Harper this year, there's a, a stat called Clutch that looks at how well you do in late and, and close situations. And and Harper was number one this, this season in Clutch. And then you look at this and Harper's, you know, in the top 10 all time. And, and in fact, if you make it 150 plate appearances, he's like third, you know. Um, you know, it all lines up to be like, well, our subjective experience is that Bryce Harper is clutch and the numbers seem to suggest he's clutch, except that two years ago, he was 50th in clutch. And then three years ago, he was 180th in clutch out of 188. He was the least one of the least clutch players in baseball three years ago. And so that's led sort of statistical analysis to say that clutch if it is a skill is a tiny skill it's you know two percent of your overall value could be your clutch value it's a couple points in batting average it's something you only know after seven thousand clutch plate appearances you know it's like it's basically the analysts say it doesn't exist but i'm not comfortable saying that it doesn't exist either um so uh, what i say is we haven't proven uh, that it exists and that if we did maybe heart monitor type studies, we'd find that it exists. Um, you know, there are ways to refine the way we study it. And then the last thing that I would say is, if you're truly, truly unclutched, your knees are knocking, you 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 can't handle it, you're sweating, you, you can't do it, I'm not sure you become a big leaguer. So I think when we're looking at big leaguers, we're already looking at only the 200 best baseball players in the world. And if we're doing that, then we there's no bell curve there. It's probably just a difference between very clutch and mostly clutch. You know what I mean? Like we're not we're yeah. not looking at people that cannot handle the moment at all, or else they probably wouldn't be in the big leagues. Is my point? Like they get washed out in college or high school or wherever. So um, that's that's sort of my theory on clutch. But it's it's a big uh, disagreement between sort of players and old school and and the analytics is whether or not clutch exists. Yeah, that that debate, I think, will rage on forever. But it's similar to, you know, <laughs> Keith and I were talking about lefty on lefty splits and, and the difficulty of even relying on those in a full season because statistically it's the same problem. It's such a small slice that you can't really value it in any sort of way. Yeah, reverse it, splits are not something you should really believe in. Reverse splits, all of these different things and, and clutch would fall into a similar bucket just because of those statistical Batter limitations. Batter numbers, you know, it's like... BVP, you want to trust it. If, if you're the kind of person that plays daily fantasy or makes a prop bet or, or just wants to root for something to be like in your favor as a fan, you want to believe all those things. And they're true until they're not. It's just the way it works. I can't help you there. But at the same time, you're like, well, there's got to be something about the way certain pitchers work 
that favors certain hitters, right? You're a good fastball hitter, and this guy's best pitch is a fastball, and his secondaries aren't good, so you're going to see him well and hit him well. But it's not it's not fully supported by numbers because the samples are simply too small. Last thing on this uh, lead up to game seven, I was really surprised. So Jose Leclerc bounced back, got out of some trouble in game six after giving up the Altuve homer in game five. Kind of nice to get a good outing in or at least a, an acceptable outing in after after a blow up like that. The Astros had a choice to make. They had the bases loaded. John Singleton came on as a pinch hitter. Instead of Yiner Diaz, I thought that was a weird choice. Like, I know you want the platoon advantage. You want to go lefty-righty when you can. But the identity of the hitters needs to matter. One of those guys was on your team for the whole season and was <laughs> a well-above-average player. And the other was just trying to claw his way back into the big leagues. John Singleton's a nice story. But I don't think John Singleton's the guy you want to use in that spot. It's also the backstory of... Uh, of Astros fans being like, why aren't we playing Yiner Diaz more? And like, you know, back <laughs> yeah, that's a great Dusty situation. Baker perfect perfect situation to use him. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't use him. And I, I just, well, if you're not going to use him there, like what, what are you doing? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, yeah. And I think that what you were saying just a second ago about like, there's things about the way, like you could, you could, maybe there was swing playing stuff where it's like, you know, oh, he's a really good low ball hitter because of his swing plane, and this is a low ball pitcher. When I, when you, I was just thinking when you were, you know, listing out those those best uh, postseason players of all time. Maybe they're clutch. Maybe they're really good at high velo fastballs because the postseason is full of high. You know, the velo goes up another tick. You know, so maybe and you start seeing the best fastballs that people have. So. You know, Bryce Harper, fastball hitter? Yeah, probably. So, <laughs> you know, so that's something I was thinking about. But yeah, in that moment, I was uh, I was just, I don't know that I processed like, oh, this should be Yanir Diaz. But I remember being like, wow, this is, uh, this is the guy up at the plate with everything on the line. That's not probably how the Astros wanted it written. Right. You would expect a slightly better option for a team that good in that spot. And my argument is they had one and they didn't use them in that spot because mm -hmm. they wanted the advantage. Maybe there was more to that decision. I'd love to know all the factors that were taken into consideration to lead to that spot because they're, they're probably very interesting. Now looking forward, game seven, it's Max Scherzer against Christian Javier. We've seen this once already in the series. Scherzer said there were positives in his first start back after the long layoff. The results weren't as positive as he was about the outing. We talked about it last week. One of our theories on the show was maybe he's just psyching himself up because he knows he's going to probably have to take the ball again for this series to go the Rangers way. How do you think they're going to manage him in game seven? You know, Based on what you saw, velo movement, the arsenal that he had, the stuff that worked, the stuff that didn't. What do you think they're going to try and do with Scherzer in this decisive game to at least cut down on the list of fringy bullpen options they have to use to get through the full nine innings? I know, because I don't even think they want to go to John Gray or Andrew Haney, you know, um, who who would give them some depth maybe if they needed to take Scherzer out early. But, um, you know, I think the the one positive and the one thing I would look at early is Velo. Um, you know, he came back from a month off and had the same fastball Velo that he'd shown. And it was one of the better 
on the better end for his fastball this year, which is 94 plus. So if he comes out throwing 94 plus, that's the first uh, positive I have. And that gives him a little bit more leash. If it's more 92, 93, then I'm, then I'm on the edge of my seat from the minute, you know, the game starts and about to take him out. The, the thing that was the negatives, I think that we all agreed on was that he just wasn't commanding his slider and his, his curveball as well. And, um, that's the thing I'd be watching otherwise, cause that's going to lead to walks and that's going to lead to maybe homers. And, uh, that's going to be like a homer is that's, that's what you're trying to avoid. Like a, a walk is okay. But if he did, the, if he got to that walk because he couldn't command his breaking balls at all, that might be, you know, that might be a quicker hook for me. Because uh, I don't want uh, a, a two-run, three-run homer to, you know, put us put the put my team in the hole that I can't get out of. It's so interesting that we're we're at a phase of, of Scherzer's career where he, I think if if you had the choice between Scherzer and Javier, based on where they're at right now in their respective careers, who would you rather have taking the ball to start this game? Yeah, I guess Javier. He Javier got his fastball back. You know, he's been striking guys out again. Um, the one weakness with Javier though, is he's pretty much a two pitch pitcher. I mean, there's only like maybe two pitchers that, that threw their primary two pitches more than him. Um, he's like kind of a 90, 90% guy when it comes to fastball slider. So, uh, you know, he's going to have to be unpredictable somehow and his command can kind of come and go. So, you know, he, there's some risk with him too. Uh, you know, hitting Christian Javier for me is sitting uh, one or the other fastball or slider and, and just getting 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 what I wanted at the right moment. Yeah, and I wonder if the Rangers are, as a lineup, um, more likely to jump on one of those offerings over the other. I think that's something to watch really closely. The thing that continues to amaze me with Javier, you know, the strikeout rate's great in the postseason. His career, 12.5 Ks per nine. He does have an issue with walks, over four and a half walks per nine in the postseason in his career. And you can even get him with the long ball over a homer per nine as well. One point two homers per nine. There was a there was like a postseason series where they were they were you know not even going to use him. I remember. Yeah, and that might have been like a fatigue and and something else may have been in play there. But still, what's been just unbelievable is the extremely low hit rate. Eighteen hits in forty three and a third inning so far for Christian Javier. And no matter how good you are, there's some luck cooked into that too. I don't know what his baseline really should be. Look at, the, look at the regular season results and get a better sense there. But this is this is an absurd stretch to begin his career, just in terms of how how difficult it is to hit him for his career. Six point five hits per nine, just to put that into the rate stat form for his postseason career. It's three point seven. Wow, that's just bizarre. Is that just uh, like I mean for me uh, balls and player team outs that's that's a refrain that I go to a lot so you know it's not just Javier it's 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 good defense behind him and and maybe uh, like really good prep work like I do think that the Astros prepare for games uh, you know uh, at an elite level so maybe this sort of conversation we're having about advanced scouting and and thinking things through like that maybe they are really good at that and and really leverage that in the postseason. I don't know. The other wrinkle here with Christian Javier is there was one regular season meeting. They obviously met earlier in this series. That was a wild game. The Rangers ended up losing 12-11, 
but they put up eight runs on nine hits over four and a third against Christian Javier. So was that that was when he didn't have his fastball or something? He lost his fastball for a while. July third. It was more midseason, yeah. and that's that was when he, when he wasn't pitching as well. Yeah. So, so that's part of it, right? It's like, well, where's that? Where's that fastball at? Is he, is he locating it where he wants? Is the velo where it needs to be? Uh, prediction for Game Seven? Would you like to make one? Well, I've had the uh, I've had the Phillies uh, and the Rangers uh, for a while in the postseason, so I'll just stick with that. Uh, and Phillies over Rangers, so that's uh, you know what's funny is last year we did all these picks on the site, and I had to do like daily picks, and I kind of hewed close to like odds and what the you know what the projection systems were saying, and I did really poorly. Um, and this year I sort of stayed out of the fray. I don't have to make daily picks. I'm not, I'm not trying to chase my tail, uh, on every game. And, uh, early, I think before this thing started, I said Phillies, uh, and that's looked good. Uh, and, uh, my, I think the Rangers are, are going to join them there, but, um, it's going to be a good one. I, 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 one thing I did want to say about Max Scherzer is, uh, you know, I've seen some, like his legacy is online and he's washed and stuff like that. Well, I mean, he. He is 39 years old, and this is the end of a Hall of Fame career. You know, if you count the postseason, he has he's he's just about to hit 3,000 innings. Uh, I don't think that his uh, postseason legacy is on the line here. He has in the postseason a 3.80 ERA with 11 strikeouts per nine, uh, and uh, he's you know seven and eight if you care about wins. Uh, I mean, I it's not like He's has an extra level in the postseason, um, but he's had plenty of good uh, postseason runs with people. Uh, he has titles. Uh, he has all the accolades. He's 100% a Hall of Famer. And, um, you know, what he does at 39 in this game, I don't think really matters uh, for his legacy. I'm 100% with you. And we, we go through this with players even, even beyond the postseason. We usually get it with the the aging sluggers that get the long-term deal and by the end of the deal, they're not the same guy they were at their peak. We did it with Albert Pujols. We just did it again with Miguel Cabrera. It it might limit where you finish on an all-time list. Like if you're not the same player you were for the last five years of your career that you were for the first 10 plus, it doesn't mean you weren't amazing for the first decade plus of your career. Like I just, I think we're, we're too quick to like start erasing stuff from past successes like the the end not being as good yeah aging is real comes for everybody eventually very very few players can retire with something left in the tank that's still at a crazy high level and that's what would have happened if scherzer had walked away like two or three years ago but that's not fun that's not good for the game i think we we want to from a neutral perspective you want scherzer to pitch well regardless of, of how you want the game to turn out you just want to see a guy show up give him five quality innings keep him in the game and you know, let good plays somewhere else decide it rather than a night where he doesn't have his best stuff. That would be kind of the neutral sort of right. thing that most people would want. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be uh, depressing to you know see him give up a couple homers in the first and be out. Even with Kershaw, it's like I don't want to see Kershaw go out getting smashed. Like oh, I, that was awful. And it's then, hard. Like it's there's a, a chance that that's the last time we see Kershaw. Yeah, that's yeah. like I mean, for for an all time great on the field, you you have players that just they don't they don't get to go off to the confetti. 
Yeah, Pujols was kind of lucky with that, man. I mean, I did not see that coming, that he would have this like sort of curtain call moment where he was good again and, and, and actually useful for his team and, you know, got everyone to smile one last time for him, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, clearly respected in that clubhouse uh, with the Dodgers during his brief time there. It was a big part of why they picked him up too, but he offered a lot more than I would have expected with the bat during that uh, swan song with them. Uh, and of course, there was a little more time after that with that return to St. Louis, but great. I thought he was cooked when the Dodgers picked him up. I thought it was over just because it looked over for so long for him in Anaheim. We're still awaiting word on Brian Abreu's suspension appeal, by the way. That's right. going to That's be the ramifications today. I was talking about earlier. Still, still talking about that hit by pitch. So he's, he's appealed it. And the, once you, once you get the, the answer, like he's going to be suspended almost certainly, at least for one game. It was a two-game suspension initially. If they reduce it to one, he misses game seven, and that's right. that. And so if he's they out, uphold he's it, out for game seven. seven plus one. And there's some, some, you know, Ken Rosenthal has a piece today about there's some grumblings out of the Astros that, like, you know, the league is showing favoritism to Chris Young because he worked that for the league for a while. Really? Uh, I don't know. Are they? It's in Ken's piece. The past precedent, though, here is points to the most likely outcome being suspension upheld. Abreu doesn't pitch in game seven and is, you know, out for another game if the Astros advance, right? Like that's, that seems like where it's going. Can't say it with certainty, but it's weird that we're stuck in limbo leading into game time. If you're the Astros, mm-hmm. you are furious about the timing of all of this because you, you know, you'd like to know, is he available? Is he not available? So right. we can make the final plan for how you want to get through and manage everything in, uh, in this game seven. Also, just from like incentives and what you want out of the game, you need to have you need to have these suspensions because you need to disincentivize hitting players, Mm -hmm. especially anywhere near the head. You know, so like that, like you just need to have that in place. And if the particulars are uncomfortable and 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 terrible for the Astros in this particular situation. You know, as a league, what are you going to do about it? You need to have these disincentives in place so that they're not people aren't hitting people, even if you know you don't know that in this case it was intentional or if it's 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 terrible timing or whatever. You still need to have these structures in place as a league. Yeah, it, it's important because the number of of unnecessary injuries that can occur when this is part of your your culture, it's it's we've seen it. It's excessive, right? You, it, we haven't seen. In a very long time, the worst of the worst case scenarios, but that's always the the concern. You miss trying to throw at somebody and hit them in the head. Anything can happen, right? Uh, so you do want to disincentivize that. I'm with you. I think they have to figure out a way in the postseason, especially, to get through the appeal process faster. But you you know you need to build a case. But how long does it take to build a case? Like these are pretty straightforward, simple. I, and I can't remember what is things. the case. He says I didn't do it on purpose, and they say you did, and then. <laughs> Right. What? The umpires on the field all agreed at the time that they thought there was intent. But again, you're all trying to get in his head in the moment in a very emotional situation with yeah. 50,000 people screaming. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the judgment of someone's intent in that moment is going to be flawless, but yeah, yeah we shall see. 
Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job Job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. I feel like we we are like burying the NLCS, and we're really not. There's just been a little less drama by comparison. So two chances for the Phillies to close this one out at home against the Diamondbacks. Uh, going back two games in this series, since that's the last time we were able to talk about it. Game four, Arizona winning a bullpen game was huge for them because they went down, of course, 0-2 in the series. Their two best starters, Gallon and Kelly, both, both coming up short at the beginning of the series was a problem. My question for you about game four was that this was actually a really entertaining game for a bullpen game, right? Like it was full of drama. Uh, Alec Thomas hit the improbable game tying home run off the bench. That was a really great moment. Uh, Gabriel Moreno got to Jose Alvarado with some inherited runners on to push the Diamondbacks into the lead. Craig Kimball remains a problem. That was all part of game four. But is a mid-series game in which 16 pitchers appear for the two teams combined, that's a nine-inning game, too. It's not like they played extras. Is that a problem, or is it just okay to have a game like this sort of sprinkled into postseason series? Because it seems like this is increasingly the direction we're heading in baseball, where most teams don't have four starters that they really like, that they want to throw out there for five-plus. So come mid-series, you sort of empty out everybody and just roll the dice and see if you can play the matchups right. I actually saw somebody in a group chat saying they loved bullpen games. I was just a little surprised by that one. Well, it's um, different when you're at home versus when you're covering it in the press box. I've never had to cover one in the press box, so they don't bother me to my core the way they might bother someone who has to actually be in the press box. Theoretically, you could be seeing a lot of nasty stuff mm-hmm. um, because bullpens are better than they've ever been. But uh, in the case of the Diamondbacks, you, like it wasn't all pretty. Sal Frank got out there and got one out, but three walks, uh, a hit, <laughs> two runs. Like that was that wasn't very pretty, and it was kind of a little difficult to watch because he just kept missing the zone. You know, it's like come on, get it in there. Um, so you know, not it wasn't all pretty all the way through. Uh, Craig Kimbrell also in this one uh, had such a bad game that his manager has since said that he's moved off of the ninth 
Um, in their case, they have such good other pitchers in Jeff Hoffman, Matt Strom, Sir Anthony Dominguez, Gregory Soto, and Jose Alvarado that uh, they can use Kimbrell earlier in the game and uh, and still have a great bullpen, I think. Um, but it did, in this case, lead to that Alec Thomas moment. We had a great time in the uh, Sarah's household. My kids were finishing up bedtime, um, and uh, I had the game on my phone. I, I'd say, I called them over. I said, here's a big moment. Uh, and they've been sort of rooting for the D-backs because they, they feel that the D-backs are the, the, the ultimate underdogs in this postseason. And I, I said, come on, Alec, you know, hit this homer, be a legend, you know, and then he hit the homer and the kids screamed and, <laughs> you know, jumped into the plushy pile. And it was it was a great moment. So uh, a great moment for the franchise too, uh, to, to, to pull them uh, even in that in that situation. Yeah. I mean, if you would have said Mantiply Frias, Kyle Nelson, Miguel Castro and and Sal Frank are going to get them through five innings against that Phillies lineup. I would have said, you sure about that? Like how many, <laughs> how many Phillies were unavailable due to an illness or something like what, what caused the Phillies lineup to, uh, to be, to be down that particular day, but they got through it. Um, now the Phillies hit Zach Gallon again in game five. It was a massive swing game because now the series is back in Philly. Phillies get the two chances to close it out. I think the thing that was really the takeaway for me in game five, and it's, it's been there for a couple of seasons now, Zach Wheeler, you know, the, the free agent contract he signed with the Phillies before the 2020 season, it was five years, 118 million. So he's got one year left before he hits free agency. Again, he's old enough where he's not going to cash in at a crazy high level, but the AAV is probably going to be pretty nice if he's healthy and wants to stick around for three or four more years. That's going to go down as a huge success story in modern free agency. And part of it, I think, is that when you saw Wheeler, when he was healthy with the Mets, he showed you know four war plus sort of stuff in terms of results. He was showing he could be a frontline sort of guy. So my question for you is just you know beyond health, what has enabled Wheeler to be so good? Because I think there were some people out there that didn't like that contract at the time the Phillies signed it, and now it's going to go down as a big free agent value. Yeah, I mean. There's there's like a, this velo piece, this return from TJ piece. Uh, he he really, I think, has pushed velo in a way that people are a little bit surprised in terms of his age and 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 where he was. Frankly, velo wise as a prospect, he was nowhere near this. He he did not have great velo as a prospect, and so he's added that velo. He's come back from TJ, and what I think makes him excellent is that each of his pitches is really good, and he has great command. So he has velo stuff command and a wide arsenal and if you look at Fangraph's wins above replacement he's the number one pitcher in baseball over the last three seasons and i think that's surprising to people some people would say well that you know that stat is flawed and they might be right but you know and then point to his era not being necessarily uh league leading it's like a you know three three or three four still really good um and I would say, well, he's had he's pitched in front of some really bad defenses. I mean, the, the Phillies literally in those three years had one of the worst defenses of all time. They've changed then, it, fortunately. They've kind of put themselves into now. a position now where they're not yeah. that level anymore. But you're right. That, that's definitely part of it. And that's kind of what makes it even more impressive that he was able to get the results he did and that with that as a starting point. And, and the park's been tough for a long part. time, too. Yeah. So I, I I think that maybe in this case, Fangraph's war does tell the right story. This is one of the best three pitchers in baseball. And uh, and he show, he's shown it right now. 
in that game, there were some hard hit balls that didn't turn out to much. Cattell Marte has been scolding the ball. Scalding? Scalding. Scalding. Or scalding. You could be He's probably scolding it on the way back to the dugout. <laughs> but, some, uh, some version of FU ball. Like, that's a scolding. Right. I mean, he hit a 110-mile-an-hour ground out uh, in that one. He's had... Uh, just, I'm not even looking at, at numbers. I know he's had at least five or six balls over 105, uh, because he had like three of them in one game. So he is hitting the ball super hard, but that didn't turn out anything. Gabriel Moreno hit a ball 109. That was a line out. Corbin Carroll hit a ball 109, just got a single out of it. So not enough launch angle on those or just not placed incredibly correctly. They did hit the ball somewhat hard. There's also some sequencing where, like, you know, Christian Walker hits a double in the sixth. Uh, Loris Gurriel hits a single in the fourth. If you kind of put some of those in the, in the right order, they might have scored some runs. But six was uh, not in the cards for them that night, and Wheeler was dealing. Yeah, he really was. Now, looking ahead to game six, it is the Merrill Kelly-Aaron Nola matchup, again, that comes up for these two teams. We've talked about Kelly a handful of times this season on Rates and Barrels as a guy that's reached a level that I didn't think was possible over the course of this year. A big part of the story for him is a really deep pitch mix. What do you think the keys are going to be for Kelly in terms of getting a certain combination of those things working? Like Which pitches are the most important to him if the Diamondbacks are going to go into Philly and extend this series another game? I mean, it's actually to me not his his worst pitches. It's it's the fastball. It's like, how is he going to use the fastball against them? Um, you know, when you know it's his other pitches that are you know his strengths. His changeup is his best pitch, and in the last uh, in the last game, he threw his changeup more than any other single pitch. You know, can he do that again? Uh, does he have to, does he, will he surprise that it's again, that sort of advanced scouting strength thing, right? Should he pitch to his strengths and throw a bunch of changeups and be predictable? Or should he throw a bunch more four seamers and sinkers when they're not expecting them? Because they will be hunting those four seamers and two seamers, except their game plan might be, well, let's sit slider because he's not going to give us a lot of four seamers and sinkers. Right. And so maybe we can hit that slider. You know, so, you know, the, the cutter or whatever. So, you know, there's there's the, there's a lot of back and forth, but it, it really matter how he gets strikes, how he uses his fastballs, and how much is he sneaking the fastballs by or using them to surprise attack. Uh, it's To me, it's about the fastballs because he has really excellent, excellent cutter curve and change. And uh, he used those really heavily in the last game. And he has to do something different. Because like we just showed with the Evaldi, you kind of kind of come back with something else. And I wonder what that will be for, for Kelly this year. Maybe for this game, maybe it'll be uh, some surprise sinkers. And then I guess the natural other side of this is Aaron Nola coming off six scoreless last time out, seven Ks, no walks, three hits. And it was a it was a gem. And he was able to just hand it over to three relievers with a pretty big lead, too, because the Phillies started piling on even more after Kelly left that matchup in game two. What should the Diamondbacks try to do differently? Like, what would your plan of attack be against Nola? I mean, he's he's uh, so excellent. I mean, I, I think the one thing is uh, you got to see what kind of command he has on the curveball that day. Um, 
because he does sometimes uh, fall into some fastball curveball cat patterns where he's like fastball curveball against righties and fastball changeup against lefties. Um, but uh, if he's really placing that curveball, everything is a lot harder. So um, I tried to spit on the secondaries early um, and uh, and hope that he doesn't have great command of, of one of them that day. We're going to have um, happy children in the Saras household tonight. Are the Diamondbacks going to find a way to extend it, or is this one ending in six? <laughs> I, I think this one's ending tonight. Aaron Nola's a big game pitcher. They're, you know, as If that exists, uh, they're at home. They're, the crowd is going to be on their side. Uh, the park is on their side in terms of they have the, the home run hitters. So I'd expect the Phillies to hit more home runs than the Diamondbacks tonight. Yeah, I think that would be the key. If you can find a way, if you're Arizona, if you can just find a way to launch a few homers early, especially, and, and kind of take the crowd out of it in the early innings, that goes a long way too, right? The longer this goes, even if Kelly comes up and it's a, a pitcher's duel through four or five, that that crowd's not going to go away. So I think the quicker you can sort of take that element out, the better off you're going to be. That's cliche, but it's generally true. Like those ruckus crowds are they're an extra thing to deal with in October that you don't deal with very often. Uh, throughout the regular Walker's season. Walker's got to get going. You know, Walker's got to get going. Mm-hmm. If you could do something where, you know, you come out of the first inning and, and Corbin Carroll and Walker have both gotten hits and you have a run or two, like, that changes everything. Yeah, just changes the complexion real early out of the gate. I'm with you, though. I do think the Phillies are going to find a way to end this one in six. Uh, Diamondbacks are a nice story. Obviously, anything can happen, but a lot leaning in the favor of the Phillies. I think you push it to seven, though. And things get a little more goofy, right? The disparity in pitching matchup tonight. It's like if you're the Phillies, you really want to end this right now for every Who possible reason. Game seven for these teams. Uh, I mean, Fott probably goes again for Arizona, right? A rookie on the line, game seven. And then it's like the, <laughs> the Walker, road. it's the Walker Sanchez. I mean, they haven't even used Walker, but it's it's Sanchez well, yeah, it was- and whole staff. I mean, it's whole staff for both. It's Ranger again. It's this. It's the rematch. It's it's Fott versus Ranger if it goes yeah. seven again. I think they both pitched so well in their game earlier in the series that I sort of just naturally expect the opposite. Yeah. Either way, there was a lot of people arguing that Fott should be left in, and I was like, "Listen, when we were having this argument about Blake Snell, you know, I get it. You know, Blake Snell like Cy Youngs and." Like, as much as I, I think Brandon Fott's a pretty good pitcher, like we're really going to have an argument about taking out a guy who had a 5-7 ERA this year. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he's just like, oh, but today he's amazing. So like, yeah, yeah. dude, you got to forget that 5-7 ERA. He's a, just a totally different person today. I, I was like, no, man. You say, thank you so much, man. You gave us five and two thirds. Yes, attaboy. What a great start. And we are taking you out because you are not going to see Kyle Schwarber a third time in this in this game, dude. I am sorry. <laughs> I, I had the... I had to give him one more batter position. I didn't want him to like go seven because I didn't think that was a good idea. Because I feel like if you let him go through the whole heart of the order a third time, you're absolutely flirting with it. The reason I wasn't in love with taking Fott out, even though you're going lefty, lefty, it's Sal Frank. Sal Frank's got like 10 big league innings, right? I know. Sal Frank against Schwarber walked, to me was like. Walk Schwarber he's, and then you had to use great. Sal Frank against Turner. And I'm like, what would you rather have done? Just let Fott face Schwarber. And if he walks him, then you go play the matchups you want. And, it, and then it's, you have Fott versus Turner, which is better. 
for me, it, that that just comes down to the the classic. Like some of the decisions you have to make are actually very hard, as far as which matchups you like. Mathematically, they did the right thing. I wanted to do the wrong thing. Also, I, because I you want Salt Frank against Harper, you know. So it's like there's only there was two batters there you didn't want fought against. So that's the that's the real reason you take them out. That's it was it was the. the Ultimately, I think that was the rule, biggest process. Yeah, you know, you get two lefty lefty matchups instead of you know going going wrong way against Schwarper. Yeah, you're you're slightly better off. I get why yeah. they did it. It's just like there's some part of me that it's probably mm-hmm. having 39 years of old school baseball analysis just like hitting me repeatedly. <laughs> and I'm like, fine, leave him in for one more. Just let just. Let's just see what happens. It should be fine. And Schwarber might have hit it. Should be fine. Schwarber could take you long any moment. Well, then he hit one off a lefty. Hit hit one off of Kyle Nelson later in the series anyway. And it's like, see, these are the guys you're throwing out there. Like, if if your lefties aren't like good lefties or great lefties, are you getting as much of an advantage as you think? That's right. That's, I mean, we're talking about soft you're not you're not bringing in you know vintage Chapman or whatever. You're not bringing in Jose Alvarado or you know someone that just throws gas from the left side so anyway it's it's a debate that will come up again i'm sure other times down the road it's also the oldest debate we people want to frame it as like this analytics thing but like it's the oldest debate in the book i remember one of the first things i remember as a fan was like you took russ ortiz out too early i don't know if you remember (laughs) this one i don't remember that exact instance 2002 it's dusty baker and uh, the 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 Giants are up three uh, one in the series, and they're up in the game, and uh, and Dusty Baker takes Russ Ortiz out and goes to Fernando Rodriguez. <clears throat> now you don't remember. The, Can't remember the name, but I you just were remember. Mad about it, though. That's why you're mad. About I was it. mad about it. <laughs> if There's the person been... you're replacing the starter with is a forgettable reliever. Yes, that might be an exception to the rule. That's an easy way to get in trouble. But it, I'm just my point is, this is the oldest argument in baseball. I feel like how many times have we argue he took that guy out too early, or he took him out, or he didn't take him out early enough. That's like you know, that's the ipso facto looking backwards. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, the argument of uh, of all time in baseball. Yep, it it truly is, and I'm looking forward to the time probably within the next year. Maybe even sooner, where it's going to come up again, and we can rehash <laughs> oh, it. Oh, it's coming up in the next two days. <laughs> Probably in the next two days, for sure, within the next year. But well, we are going to go on our way out the door. A few reminders: you can get a subscription to the Athletic. Two dollars a month gets you in the door at theathletic.com/slash/baseball/show. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter slash X, you can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek and Ryper. Follow Britt as well at Britt underscore Giroli. That's going to do it for this episode of the Three O Show. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Tuesday. We've always got the green light here. Green light.